You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. If you guys would go ahead and open to Exodus chapter 15, we'll be picking up on our series this morning titled Grace Upon Grace, as you guys just saw. We're going to specifically be looking at singing and why we sing, and we're going to look at that through the first song that's actually in our Bible, which is Exodus chapter 15. So as, as Zach mentioned, we're going to be looking at worship and singing is one of the ways that we worship on a Sunday morning, but Sunday morning could simply be defined as this God's people coming together to worship. Just that simple God's people coming together to worship. Where does that leave you? If you're not a child of God or someone investigating claims of Christianity, it's a great time to sit in and understand what the church is, what worship is, why we exist, and how we want to faithfully live that out. So turn with me, as I said, to Exodus chapter 15, as we dive in, and look at this. Music is powerful. Like, it, it is so powerful. In fact, we see that in our Bible with King Saul in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. He was troubled by an evil spirit, and so he would have David come in, and David would play the harp for him, and then his spirit would be at ease. We also know that music is powerful because people listen to music before you work out to get you pumped up. One of the things that our family loves doing is in the evening times, we like turning on Whitney Houston. I want to dance with somebody because you can't hear. Yeah, I hardly ever get amens. I mentioned Whitney Houston and dancing and people are like, praise the Lord. <laughs> and so that's, that's a tradition for us. We love to do that. You will never, ever, ever see what that looks like. In fact, I make sure our blinds are pulled down before that whole routine starts. So, but listening to music like that invokes something, dancing, and it makes you want to do something. In fact, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, had a big, big view of the importance of music. In fact, he emphasized the value of God's word and saw music as a means to share truth from the Bible. Luther even compared the importance of music to that of theology. He claimed that music was a gift from God capable of fighting evil and promoting good. 
Luther utilized the gift of music to spread the message of God's word and further the Reformation. Music is truly a gift from God. It's also a bit of a time machine, is it not? Music takes us back to certain places in time connected to certain people. I remember one time pre-marriage, a long time ago, pre-Jesus, out on a date with a girl and a horrific gross song came on and she proceeded to tell me that this was uh, her song with her previous boyfriend. The relationship didn't work out, did not last, but for her, it, it, it made her think of a specific person in a specific time and place. Did she need to share that? I don't think so, but she did. Music does that for us. It, it pulls on our senses. In fact, so much of what we do in worship is actually coming from our senses. And God gives us ways to pull from our senses and, and to experience him through our senses. So we hear things and it takes us back. I'm the youngest of four and we're pretty spread out. So I got an eclectic just range of music growing up from my dad to my mom to my brothers and my sisters. But it makes me think of times and it makes me think of places and it makes me think of people. And just as we see on a Sunday morning, we also take communion week after week which is something we get to experience with our senses. In fact, for so long, it was always taken with wine because we smell the wine. And the smell of the wine is a constant remembrance of Christ's blood that was shed to purchase us, to save us, to redeem us. We see baptism, and baptism is something that we get to see with our senses. But for those being baptized, you feel it. You feel the water. You feel what it is to go down into the water, into immersion, into death, and then to be raised out of the water. It's an expressive. It's pulling from our senses. We're going to see that this morning as we look at worship and what it is. <clears throat> First, we need to see and understand this. We have a song today, and we have a song that follows up from what God did that we saw last week. In other words, what we have is we have people singing and declaring and rejoicing to God, but they're doing this because God had revealed himself to them. Singing is a response to revelation. Worship is a response to revelation of who God is and what God has done. What we're going to see this morning is that's exactly what's happened. And we need to understand this. Maybe you've grown up in the church your whole life. Maybe this is your first time in. Maybe you're just coming back in. But maybe you didn't actually understand this message. That the message of Christianity is not if we sing really hard and obey all of God's commandments and do all of that really well, then God will be pleased and deliver us. In fact, you have to see that we're at chapter 15 now. And what we've seen is God revealing who he is. God giving truths about who he is. But then God being the main source, the only source of true salvation for his people. God does all the work. And by doing all the work and by saving his people, the response to that is then worship. You have to get that. If not, you're going to be confused about what the message of Christianity is. It's not, if I do this and sing really well, God's going to be pleased with me. It's God saves you. He's very pleased with you. He delights in you because of his grace, because of the work that his son has done. And we sing as a response to that. In fact, you see this in the New Testament. You look at the apostle Paul and how he writes. Read the epistle to the, the church in Rome. Read Romans. You get 12 chapters of indicatives. In other words, truth after truth after truth. This is who God is. This is what salvation is. This is what the gospel is. This is what God has done. This is what God has provided. Then you get to chapter 12 and he, uh, he introduces us to an imperative. Now, after essentially 12 chapters of telling you about who God is and the salvation he's provided, this is how you live. We see that here too. This is who God is. This is what he's done. This is the way he's rescued. And now here's how we live and respond to that. Otherwise, you will hear God's commands and they will fall upon a heart that only knows this. I must work this way in order to try to merit my favor with God. And that's not Christianity. It's something else. 
entirely something else called religion, but it's not Christianity. This is a picture of what it is. God saves by his might, by his power, by his faithfulness, by his holiness, by his goodness. And then people sing and live as a response to that. In fact, I love, love what the Puritan Thomas Chalmers says. He says, the freer the gospel, the more sanctifying the gospel, and the more it is received as a doctrine of grace, the more it will be felt as a doctrine according to godliness. Dane Ortland says this, the Bible teaches that healthy spiritual growth takes place only when such commands land on those who know they are accepted and safe, irrespective of the degree to which they successfully keep those commands. Did you hear that? True holiness, true godliness, true sanctification, growing into Christ's likeness only happens when we know the degree, the, the degree to which God has saved, redeemed, and rescued his people. Otherwise, what you're producing in your life actually isn't holiness. It's an attempt to try to make yourself holy before God, but it starts different. God makes you holy and says, now live according to the holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for that truth that I pray that is not something that just embeds in our minds, but it's embedded into our hearts. That we're not left on this earth trying to figure out all that we can do to make ourselves right before you. Trying to figure out what ladder we can climb, what we can do, what we can perform to try to make ourselves right in your eyes. Father, we can't. Our lives don't stack up next to your holiness. Our best day, God, can't come close to how pure and undefiled you are. Let us see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of your holiness and your faithfulness and what Christ has done to bridge that gap for us. And let us respond as a church. Let us respond with singing. Let us respond with worship. Father, I pray in, 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 in the best way that I know how that you would kill anything in us that produces a consumer heart where it's all about us and what we can gain and what we can get. Father, let us live as a response to love and serve you because all that you've given. Holy Spirit, move and work this morning. Convict, challenge, encourage, transform. Teach us what true worship is. In Jesus' name, amen. This will be our breakdown. Genesis 15, or <laughs> Genesis, Exodus 15, we're going to look at this. Saved people sing. Three words. You guys got this. Saved people sing. We're going to look at our breakdown like this. Verses 1 through 5 is going to be saved people sing about God and his salvation. 1 through 5. The next is 6 through 12, saved people sing to their defender. And then 13 through 17 is saved people sing to God and one another. Where do we get this from? Well, thankfully with the song that we see that the Israelites are singing, we know how it bookends. Look at, look at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Jump all the way down now to verse 21. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. This is, these are bookends. It's telling us what is happening in the beginning and the end, what the author's point is, and everything in between is sandwiched in between that main thrust, between that, those main points. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. But let's go back to Exodus 14 and read this. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. God had just delivered them. Remember, they walked through 
the Red Sea on dry ground. As soon as the Egyptians try to walk through, God's wrath symbolized in the waves and in the water came crashing down on them. And we saw last week, was it because they were worse people than the Israelites? No. So why did God save one people and then pour his wrath out on the other? We have no other explanation other than by God's grace, he chose to save the nation of Israel because of his goodness. And so that's what he does. So they break out into this song immediately afterward. There's debris floating around, bodies floating around, and they start singing. What provokes this singing in them? God's justice and God's grace mixed together. They look and see and realize this, that they have just been saved. They knew that they could not save themselves. In fact, we know from the prior chapter that it actually says, just be silent still because God is going to fight for you. And so we recognize that this morning. They were pinned in. They had no means to save themselves. And so God has to do something supernatural. That's what he does. So let's look at this first. Saved people sing about God and his salvation. One through five. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Okay, Save people sing about God and his salvation. What do we see in verses one through five? What we see is we see a song that's driven by lyrics that are all about God, not about man and what man has done, not about man and what man has accomplished. Song lyrics are important. And this song is all about God and his salvation and the horse and the rider that he's thrown into the sea. In fact, in verse two, we actually see the word salvation. If that's a new word for you, what it actually means is that God helped But more than that, God has rescued and God has saved his people. They are actually singing because they look and they see all the debris. They see the bodies and go, my goodness, that should have been us. The only thing we can do is rejoice and sing that for whatever reason, God saved us. Here's a question, church family. When's the last time that you rejoiced over God's salvation for you? Do you show up to sing because you understand if it it wasn't for God and for his salvation he's provided in Jesus Christ, I would be dead, separated from him for eternity, a child of wrath? Or do you go, my goodness, I sing and I give my life as a response in worship because of who God is and the salvation he's provided. Saved people sing about God and his salvation. What we need to recognize this is the Israelites were singing because of the Exodus. They were just delivered. The Israelites were coming in to wipe them out, obliterate them, and they were saved. We look at that story and go, whoa, that's incredible. God's miracle, he parted the water, they walked through, God saved them. There's a greater exodus in our Bible, and it's the exodus that Jesus Christ provides. We can look at the Red Sea and go, wow, that's amazing, but we should look at the cross and go, that is so much more amazing. Why? Because this exodus provided a means of salvation, but the Israelites would continue to need to be saved and saved and saved again. Because of the cross, it's once and done. Once and for all done, it's the finished work of Jesus Christ that he does and that he completes that gives a greater exodus. It delivers us from the sin and the punishment that we deserve. Now, if this is harsh for you to hear, oh, sin and punishment and, and, and God brings down his wrath on these people, let me say this. Have you ever noticed that from the youngest of age, our kids learn the word fair? 
We don't teach them that. Like I'm not getting in fights with my wife screaming, that's not fair, right? Our kids learn that. Why? Deep within us intrinsically, we have a knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. We know what is fair, what is just, and what is unjust. And when we look at the nation of Egypt, we saw their injustice. In fact, they literally ripped babies out of mothers' hands and drowned them into a river. And we go, that's unjust. That's not fair. That needs punishment. The problem is when we get to our own sin against God, we go, well, maybe God will just pass over that. But we can't expect God to be anything other than just and holy. So when he looks at us, it would not be fair of God. It would not be good of God to just pass over our sin. Our sin is going to need to be dealt with. And here's the thing. One of my favorite times of the week is we hash out the sermon, the songs, and all this time that goes into our Sunday gathering. And one of the things that one of our pastors, Brad, said, he said this. He said, when the first time Jesus came, he fought for us and on our behalf. But the second time Christ comes, he's going to fight against us if we're not in him. A man of war, like that is strong language, especially since a lot of the language that we've portrayed of Jesus is flowing locks, a lot of product in his hair, very soft and sensitive. And the Bible says a man of war. Even when he came the first time, he went to war against demons. But what he did ultimately is you need to hear this. Christ went to war on the cross on behalf of us. Because God, being just and holy, being a fair God, needed to punish sin. And so what he did is he punished Christ for our sins. This is not World War I or II or anything like that. This is a universal, infinite, eternal, cosmic war that is grand. Jesus Christ fought an eternal war on the cross on our behalf. He experienced eternal hell so we don't have to. What we get to do is place our trust in him and he provides that salvation. The Israelites sang because they had a picture of this and understood it. We look back to what Christ did and go, my goodness, that should have been me. My goodness, he did that for me. He did that for us. And the response is singing. It's worship. It's to declare of who God is and the salvation that he's provided. Let's read Zephaniah. You guys don't have to turn there. I have it for you. Zephaniah 3 is this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Listen to this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It can also be translated with thunderous singing, with rejoiceful singing. God, when you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, when Christ is your salvation, he looks at you and he delights in you. He sings over you, not just with singing, but with loud singing of rejoicing, thunderous rejoicing. The reason that we sing is because the God of all heaven who should go to war with us is now at peace with us. And not just peace, but he's delighting and singing and rejoicing over us. And then the response of this is Psalm 47.1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to the Lord with loud songs of joy. We sing as a response to the salvation that God has provided. We don't sing to try to earn the salvation that God might provide. That's why the Israelites were singing. That's why we sing. Let me say this this morning. I think as we dive into our next sections, it's going to be hard for some of you to hear. I I, I hope the word challenges us. I hope it cuts us, but I also hope that it heals us. And I say this because this, the message of Christianity, and I've said this before, is not for the little engine that could, okay? This is a quote from someone else. It's for the train wrecks who can't. The, the, The way into Christianity is to admit, I have not lived up to God's standards. I am broken. I am sinful. There is no way that I stack up to God's holiness. 
I can't compare. I'm unrighteous on my own. What I need is an alien righteousness, the righteousness that exists outside of me. And, and you say, I can't save myself. I need Jesus and I need his righteousness. And when you put your trust in him, he gives you all of his and he takes all of yours. What we should therefore be is the least defensive people on the face of the earth. If someone comes to us and challenges us, rebukes us and says something to us, because what we have said to even be in Christianity is I can't measure up. Something happens though. We become Christians and someone walks into our life and says, hey man, I've been noticing the way that you love and treat your wife. And I think you need to grow on that. Something rises up within us to defend ourselves, our inner lawyer. Why? Because we love the self. We love being right and we love our own righteousness. In fact, sometimes we reject the righteousness of Christ, love our own self-righteousness and want to build that up by instead admitting, yeah, you're probably right. I do need to grow in that area, which is why I have the righteousness of Christ given to me. And so let me say this this morning. This has been something that has helped me. If you feel that rising up in you, because there's a challenge, think of it like this. Think of self-righteousness as a consuming fire within you. And think of someone's exhortation, challenge, or rebuke as a glass of water to help cool off that fire a little bit, okay? So instead of instantly when someone challenges in our life to just respond back defensively, maybe go, is this a glass of water? <laughs> that I can maybe drink down a little bit to cool off and stifle the self-righteous consuming fire that burns within me. We have the freedom in Christ to receive because our righteousness is not on our own. It's from Christ. Let's keep moving forward. Save people sing to their defender. So first save people sing about God and his salvation. As we read through that, it is all about God and his attributes and what he has done. Very little about man and what we accomplish and what we do. None. In fact, starting in verse six, let's pick up there. We see that saved people sing to their defender. What does it mean for God to be our defender? Look, your righteous hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your righteous hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your hand. The earth swallowed them. Look at how this ends. In the same way, verse six says, your right hand, O Lord, Glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. At 12, it says this, you stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. So again, we have these smaller bookends. What is it about God's right hand? We understand this, that what is happening here is that saved people sing to their defender. In the first section, one through five, they're singing about God and his attributes. Now it shifts. They're singing to God, your, 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 you, you, you. There's a shift, but the shift is still not toward I. Save people sing to their defender. This is what's important. The lyrics that we sing on a Sunday morning are important. The words that we declare about God and to God need to be theologically accurate and truth-telling. The sad thing in our culture today is that people don't actually worship truth as much as we tend to worship our emotions and let that be the guide. Hey, how was service today? Man, it was good. What made it good? I don't know. It just, it just felt good. Some of the stuff they said I don't think was truthful. Does it matter? Because it just felt good. Hey, man, how's, 
how's your theology in, in, in this area? I, I, don't, I don't know, man, but, but I'm doing good. I'm happy. Things feel good. So what we end up doing is we don't actually end up worshiping because the truth of how God has revealed himself, we end up worshiping our emotions and an, and an emotional experience. We don't worship God because he is our defender and he's the defender. What we do is we worship how an experience possibly makes me feel on a Sunday morning. Man, this is dangerous. Look, emotions aren't bad. Let me say that. We are created in the image of a God who is complex with complex emotions, but emotions were never intended to be the guiding source of our life. What do you feel like doing? That's not intended. What has God said? What has God commanded? That's our question that we live out of, that we respond with. Theology and the theology of the words we sing matter. Again, sadly, if we're being honest, Sunday mornings have little to do with truth, why people choose churches. As people church shop, it's, I don't know, didn't really make me feel this way. It didn't produce this sort of emotion in me. We treat the church like a restaurant. Here's what I mean. I go to the restaurant and I go, boy, I like the lighting in here. It's good. It's set how I, how I like it. I like this place so far. I don't know about the music. It's turned up a little bit too loud for me. Maybe they could bring that down just a touch, just a bit. Our, our, our waiter is decent, but let's take a look at the menu and see all that they provide. Do you guys see that we do this? We treat the church like it's a restaurant, something for us to be consumed instead of a house of worship where we come together to declare truths about who God is and what he has done. And then we go, well, we'll just kind of tip based upon the service I got. It has little to do about, yeah, it, it's the same thing. Well, I don't know. I kind of like that pastor. I like the way he dressed. He was pretty funny. Some of his jokes were good. I didn't like him. I don't know. The, the whole singing thing, the, the, the style wasn't my thing. What about, what about the lyrics of the song? What they communicate? I wasn't paying attention to that. It was just more about the lighting wasn't my thing. And, and so we do this. Without knowing we, we, we do this, we have taken our model for life as consumers and then fed it into the church and it's gross because the church is not about loving the people of God and beholding the beauty of this people that Christ has purchased and redeemed and ransomed that are marvelous in his sight. It's about what can these people do and provide for me? What can I get out of this? What is here for me to consume that meets my taste and my flavors? Let me look at their menu and see what kind of services they provide. When all of worship is about us singing to God, but also through our lives declaring to God, you are our defender, our protector, the righteous one who has redeemed us. In fact, look here in this text. I love this. Verse seven says, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury and it consumes them like stubble. Stubble reminds us of Pharaoh because remember he made them go collect their own straw, stubble. He was a horrible dictator. He wanted him to serve them. They also said, who is this Yahweh? Well, now we know this is Yahweh. He is our defender. He's a man of war. And the way that he treats us looks drastically different because he saves and he provides. He is our defender. Listen to this. In ancient Eastern cultures, your accuser would sit at your right hand. So if you went into trial, the person accusing you would sit to your right. They would bring all their charges against you saying, here's why they're guilty. Here's what they've done, all of this. And here it says this, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. It ends with that, does it not? And everything in between is uncovering what that means. 
Look at verse 12. You stretched out your hand, the earth is swallowed. David understood what this meant. Look at Psalm 16. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David understands that what replaces the accuser is God as his defender. For the Christian who has a saving faith in relationship with Jesus Christ, the enemy is squashed. Here, God crushes the Egyptians, their enemy. They can no longer bring the charges against them. He's like, I've taken care of it. I, I crushed the enemy. When Christ went to the cross, what he was doing is he was crushing Satan and cr- crushing the enemy so that any charge the enemy brings to you in your life, day after day where you feel shame and guilt, God's decla- declaration to you through and in Christ is done, paid for, acquitted, innocent, guiltless, shameless, free. That's what he does. That's what it is to have God. At our right hand, Christ as our righteous defender. Christ sits where? Look at Colossians 3.1. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians 2.6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are so united with Christ. Ephesians right there talks about that we're already seated there with Christ. With our righteous defender at the right hand of God. Anything the enemy can bring against you, anything the enemy can bring against us, Christ declares, my blood is paid for that. You don't have to bear the guilt. You don't have to bear the shame. I took all that on the cross for you. What you get to bear is my love and my righteousness, my purity and my holiness for you. Because we have a defender that sits at our right hand. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for David? He says, I have something unshakable. Because Christ is our defender and because we sing to our defender, we have something. It's called an unshakable identity. See, so much in our life is constantly shifting and changing and moving. People bring charges against us. Things happen. You have something that is unshakable. Your life is hidden in Christ. You have an identity as a son and a child, as a daughter of God. That will never change for eternity. It's unshakable. Because as long as Christ sits on the right hand on the throne, you cannot be removed. That is what produced worship. That is what produced singing for them because they understood who their defender was and who their defender is. We don't come to Sunday hoping that our emotions will lead us to worship God. We don't go through life hoping that maybe my emotions will produce something in me to love and serve other people. Our emotions are flawed. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked, as Jeremiah says. We look at God's revelation of who he is and the salvation he's provided, and the defender that Christ is, the fact that we cannot be shaken outside of his love and outside of his presence. And we go, that is why I will sing. That's why I'll sing. Again, we don't come in going, man, I got in a big fight with my wife on the way here. It was a rough morning. Things like this are happening. I'm just not feeling it. I love you, but that doesn't matter. God is worthy. In fact, if God didn't even save the nation of Israel, God is still worthy of our worship as our creator. So regardless of what's going on, if we're constantly waiting for our emotions to catch up to our faithfulness, man, we are going to be really far behind. And in fact, that kind of thing is producing what we see in many churches today. In fact, Bethel and Bill Johnson is one of the churches to where what is being worshiped is an emotional response. And so what we see is we literally see people drunken in laughter, People so drunk that they can't stand up. People out of control. People singing, dancing. Pastors waving their arms and their jackets like this. And people falling over. They're having this highly emotive response. 
so to speak. You know what's interesting? You can look this up later. The worship in Hinduism is called Kundalini worship. It looks exactly the same as what we're seeing in Bethel. People drunk with laughter, people falling on the ground, shaking violently, and all that. Do you think that our God is maybe different than an occult God? And that the way that he is worthy of worship should look different. Never mind that the fruit of the spirit is self-control. All that matters is, man, this feels good. He's, he's falling on the ground. I don't know what she's doing. This is crazy. This is awesome. We don't know why. Was anything truthful said? Nope. But our emotions said it felt good. I had a conversation with a man once. He said, I disagree with your church's theology on this position, but I'm going to give you some time to unpack it. So I said, great, I'm going to do that for my source of authority, Scripture. I'm going to do that for five minutes. I just asked one thing. After I go, will you go and unpack to me how you've arrived where you're at? I did this. And after five minutes, I asked him to do the same thing. And he said, you know what, Pastor? I'm just a simple-minded guy. I just believe what I believe because I feel to be right. I'm like, okay. At, At this point, I have nowhere to go in this conversation because your emotions are your highest authority. You have just simply appealed, uh, uh, appealed to, I'm, I'm just a simple mind. It doesn't really matter to me what God's word says. What matters to me is what my emotions feel. God, life. So some people go, this theology is producing a sense of joy and peace and happiness in my life. Me eating an entire box of donuts produces the same thing that doesn't make it healthy. It produces obesity and high, I don't know, cholesterol and heart disease and all sorts of other stuff. Our gauge for life can be, well, it makes me feel happy. Our gauge for life, is it true to God's word? Is it consistent to what God has said? We sing because of that. We don't treat our singing and our, and, and, and our worship and all that we do going, man, I just wasn't feeling it today. Ian wasn't up here. Rick wasn't preaching. It's not my favorite person and stuff like this. It's God. It's a response to who he is and what he's done. As the God of our salvation, as the righteous defender, but also we sing, save people sing to God and to one another. Let's look at this. Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Redeemed means purchase. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They have trembled. Pangs have seized them. The, the inhabitants of Philistia now are the chiefs of Eden dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because all the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Tell your people, O Lord, pass by. Tell the people, pass by, whom you have purchased. Purchase language again. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Saved people sing to one another, to God and to one another. Look at the language here. You have led, in 13, you have led in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength, your holy abode. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary. What is happening? God is always saving a people. And in the old covenant, God's people are the nation of Israel. God has saved them. He's provided salvation for them. But what they're looking forward to is an abode. Exodus doesn't end right here. People, it doesn't end here. It actually ends with a tabernacle and a place for them to experience God's presence with them on earth and for them to worship as the people of God. They look forward to the promised land when God takes them into Canaan. We see this in Joshua and where they're going to be in the land of God and one day where they will build a temple in Jerusalem and people will come to the temple to worship God and experience his presence on earth. But we also have an abode 
our abode and, and the abode, the dwelling place of God is the local church. It's the people of God that he has created, that he has established the gospel, the work of the gospel creates a people, the church. And then that people work to declare and protect and guard and share and live out the gospel. How do we see this? Look at how scripture defines us. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. God's dwelling place is no longer a temple. It is a people called the local church that sing and worship him with their whole lives. First Peter two, four and five says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We also know that in Ephesians 1, it says that the church is the fullness of Christ. God saves a people, and he saves a people to worship him. He doesn't save a people if they worship him. He saves a people to worship him and to sing to him. And he places them in, their, in his abode. Christ dwells within us. We dwell within Christ, and the people come together. And that's a picture of who Christ is here on this earth. It's a beautiful picture, but we need to see and understand this, that singing is ultimately done to God. We sing and declare to God. He saves a covenant people that sing to him and to one another, but singing is also not just singing to God. Listen to this. Maybe this is new for you. We actually sing to God, but we also sing to one another. We sing to one another. Did you know that on a Sunday morning, you don't know the people that are sitting around you? You don't know where they're at. You don't know what they're going through, but you have the opportunity to sing on a Monday morning to actually care for and love other people. You get to sing songs like, when we survey the wondrous cross where the Prince of Glory died. When we get to sing songs like, our God is three in one. This I believe. We are actually declaring the truths of a triune God to other people around us. When we sing this song, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When we sing, we sing to God to give adoration and glory to him that he is worthy of, but we also sing to actually care for the people around us. Zach read some verses this morning. We'll reread them again because it's actually, this is based upon scripture. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Doing that to one another. Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. It's so much bigger than just showing up and being like, I, I guess I'll sing. It's actually singing is bringing the whole man into a spot of worship. We're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you pay attention to the lyrics you sing, you engage your mind and love God that way. Then what brings forth from the soul and the heart is worship to God because of who he is and what he's done. Strength comes out as we love God through the strength of lifting our voices to him. This is not a place for personal meditation and reflection. 
It's just not. Biblically, we, we gather to sing. You can do that in your personal devotional time. I say that as, I know that sounds harsh, but that's not what it is. It's actually us given the opportunity to sing to God and also declare beautiful truths to one another. If everyone took that approach, this would be nothing more than a concert on a Sunday morning with a bunch of people sitting and a bunch of people performing. Because of the covenant that God makes with us, we sing. Let me say this. I'm going to wrap up my time. The gospel provides the means for us to overcome the hurdles of why we don't sing. The gospel provides that. When you have a security in your identity in Christ, you can throw away and set aside your insecurities. Here, here are some of the reasons people don't sing. I can't sing good. I would disagree with Zach who said, I promise you sound good. I do not sound good. I can promise you that. I've heard myself. My wife has heard me. My best friend one time in a car was like, just give it your all. I gave my all. And he's like, that was terrible. I don't sing good. But do you know that my voice lifted to God is a delight to his ears because my singing comes through the work of his son. I don't know the song. Church, family, we love you. We provided lyrics for you to look at. Here's another one. I don't want to make my friend uncomfortable who I brought to church. They're already uncomfortable. <laughs> They're in a church with a bunch of people singing and going like this, right? <clears throat> Here's a big one, though, if we're being honest. I'm too proud or cool. The king of kings humbled himself to rescue and save you. You can set aside some of your coolness, some of your pride, to look at the king of kings who died on a cross for us. And we lift our voice because of that. Here's what I would say to reiterate in closing. Maybe this sounds legalistic to you. I hate legalism. There's another way to say it. What legalism is, is if I do this really well, God loves me. I try to make that clear every point along the way. God has saved us. It's his salvation. God is our defender through Jesus Christ. God saves the covenant people, not because we're good, but because he's good and he stays faithful to his covenant. Listen, you cannot shake or move or squirm or do anything that puts you outside of God's love and your relationship with him because of his faithfulness. So I'm not saying worship to please God. I'm saying we worship because God is pleased with us through the work of his son. But what I'm also saying is this, maybe what's going to change your heart in time please listen closely here, and, and you can teach your kids this, talk to one another, is maybe what you've understood church to be and, and what the gathering is on a Sunday morning is not actually about worship. It's actually about, I go there because it makes me feel good. I go there because I expect to get this out of it. What if it was a heart shift to say, Sunday morning is so much more and so much bigger than that. I go there on a Sunday morning, and I teach my family and teach my kids that the church is not something for me to simply consume, but the church is the bride of Christ that he shed his blood for. Who does Christ have his affections for? Church that he purchased with his own blood. How do we align our hearts like Christ? To love the church and to give our lives in sacrificial love to the church. It's not about me going and seeing what I can get, what I can consume. I'm telling you, it will shift your theology, it will shift your mindset, it'll shift your heart set. If you come through the doors on a Sunday morning, even before you get here saying, how do I not just suck and consume everything out of this, but how do I worship and give praise to God for what he's done and the family that he's brought me into? And I'll end with something you guys will hate. When we show up and how we show up and how often we show up speaks a lot to what our heart thinks of the church. When we show up late, it says, it's a product that I come to when I want to consume. 
When we show up inconsistent, it says, I go when I feel like going. Same with our gospel communities. And how we show up. Do we pray? Do we think through, my goodness, where can I sit this morning to love and serve those around me? Or do we just simply think, my life's in a bit of a mess. I just need, and it's going to be that. You're going to get nurtured. You're going to get fed. You're going to get all that. But what's actually going to make your life and your heart grow to reflect more of Christ in your life of the church is realizing that it's so much bigger than just coming to get. It's actually coming to serve and live out and encourage and equip and edify. The result of this, there are people sitting around you that don't know Jesus. Paul and Silas, when they were in prison, sang, and the other cellmates heard it. And they were like, oh my goodness, when you sing on a Sunday morning, people that don't know Jesus around you are hearing the beauty of who God is and what he's done to save them. Singing is so much bigger. Let's pray. Father, thank you that saved people sing because of your salvation. Saved people sing because you're our defender. Father, saved people sing to you and to one another because of the covenant that you made with us. God, we confess that at our heart we're selfish people. I I'm such a selfish person. I see this in my marriage. I see this as a father. I see this in my devotion to your church, Jesus. But Lord, I rest and trust in this. You have paid the price for me in full, that my life has been acquitted by your work, and that I want my life to be lived out, and I want our life as a church to be lived out in worship to you. In Jesus' name.